There are tragic videos online and there are funny videos online. And sometimes you find tragedy and comedy mixed together. I came across a home security video not too long ago of a kid who was caught outside at night when a drive-by shooting occurred on his street. It's terrible that these kind of things happen. But in the midst of this tragedy, there was something fairly comedic in his response. Most of us would expect that someone caught in that situation would run away, maybe run inside their house. But this kid did something different. This kid, he had a bucket in his hand. And uh, as he was outside, he was just drumming. He was fooling around, you know, just being a kid. And when he heard the shooting, he decided that the best course of action would be to hide by putting the bucket over his head. Car drove by, and he survived. But generally speaking, I wouldn't say that this was the best tactic to employ in terms of trying to hide. Now, I mention all of this because I think that it's a, a fitting analogy for the way that we often try to make our way through this world. That way and the way of Jesus come into conflict, as we find, as we read at the end of Matthew 16. We want to do things our way, see things that we don't, we want to blind ourselves from the things that Christ is trying to show us. That's exactly what we find the disciples doing here, specifically Peter. Returning back to Matthew 16, and we're going to be starting in verse 21. Now, I, last week I read you verses 21 and 22, and we're going to start there again just to refresh your memory. You recall that previously Peter's been a rock star. He uh, confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, and Jesus is like, Peter, the Father has shown this to you. You're a rock, I'm going to build a church upon you. And then, getting back to Matthew 16, 21, it says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And now this is where we get Jesus' response. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So put yourself in, in Peter's shoes here. You've gone from the highest of highs, where Jesus is saying that you're right to confess that I am the Messiah, the promised one who's to come. 
that you are the rock to the lowest of lows. He goes from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows here where Jesus goes from praising him to calling him Satan. Saying, get behind me, Satan. Earlier he called him a rock and now he's calling him a stumbling block to him. Now it's interesting that Jesus does call Peter Satan here. Now he's not intending to say that Peter is literally Satan, but he's saying that he's acting just like Satan and that he's trying to tempt Jesus to get off course from what the Father has for him. To get him to depart from the will that he shares with the Father and also with the Spirit. And we see Satan do this earlier in Matthew. In Matthew 4, 8-10, through 10, you'll remember Jesus is fasting. He's gone out into the wilderness for 40 days to be tested. And one of the, the last temptations being, that's recorded here in Matthew is found in Matthew 4, verses 8-10. through 10. It says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So the problem that Jesus identifies in his interaction there with Satan is that Satan's trying to get him to worship Satan, to worship himself. And to serve Satan. And in fact, to get Jesus to act according to a will that's apart from the Father's plan and that he's going to take a shortcut to get the kingdoms of the world. Now we know that Jesus is, is, going to, is King of kings and Lord of lords and he's going to receive all this. But Satan is trying to offer him a way that doesn't include the cross. If he'll just bow down and worship Satan. Now, the problem with Peter that Jesus identifies is, he says, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So again, similar to what we have going on with Satan here, is we have a competition of concerns. Jesus is single-mindedly focused on what is God's concern? Because he is the Son, and he shares everything in common with the, with the Father. And he says, the concerns of God is leading me to a cross where I'm going to be raised from the dead and, I'm, and we're going to redeem the world. But Peter's concerns are of the human sort because Peter's like, well, Jesus, I don't, I don't want you to suffer. I don't want you to die. And what's more, I don't really want that to uh, be my fate and the rest of my buddy's fate that we would have to be associated with the Messiah who, who goes to a cross. And what we're seeing here is just how deceptive human concerns can be. Because, I mean, we, we all understand what Jesus is doing here. We, we live on the other side of the cross, but honestly, who can't sympathize with Peter's concern here? <laughs> 
if Jesus, if you were one of the disciples and Jesus told you, yeah, I'm going to go and suffer and I'm going to be nailed to a cross, most of us would be like Peter saying, no, 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 Jesus, that can't, that can't be the plan. Never, never, never let that happen. That, that's the thing. Peter has been pretty bold about this. He's taken Jesus aside and basically scolded him, saying, what are you talking about? That's not going to happen to you. Human concerns can blind us to what God wants us to be doing. It can look like us trying to take the natural course of protecting ourselves or advancing ourselves. We, actions that the world would say, hey, you're totally justified to do that, but which, in accordance with God's will, aren't really legitimate, are actually at cross-purposes with God's will and with his ways. And we've seen this even in the life of the church in, in America, how there's been churches that have been caught up in scandal, and instead of following the way of Christ and confessing their sins and, and being forthright and honest, they followed the ways in the world by lawyering up and trying to protect themselves. And something that any corporation would say, oh yeah, that's what you got to do. But the church is not a corporation. The church is the body of Christ, and it doesn't do things in the ways of the world. What Jesus is highlighting here, and putting his finger on Peter's concerns, is that Peter is a servant of his own concerns, and that's what's driving his own will and actions. And that's true of all of us. Every person is a servant of a certain set of concerns, whether they're concerns of our own making or of the culture in which, in which we live. And we offer our lives to those concerns. So if I live in a culture in which the most important thing is getting all the money, being famous, etc., etc., then I'm offering my life unto those things. That's how we get, you know, in America we have this culture of Workaholism. People just going on busy, 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 busy because they think that's what's most important. And what we're really doing there is making a sacrifice of our lives to those concerns. And of course, sacrifice is what constitutes worship. And so it's totally appropriate for Jesus to make this common link between Peter and Satan because Peter's concerned with those things that worship human concerns and the priorities of this world rather than worshiping God, which Jesus is going to be manifesting in his life of obedience by being willing to be obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Peter has been confronted with the danger of the course set before Jesus. And as I've already mentioned, this implies suffering for Peter and the rest of the disciples as well. And his response has been to reject the reality of the world and God's plan of intervention. His 
his response has been to take the bucket of his own concerns of how he thinks things should go down and to fix it firmly over his head as though this is the real way of salvation. The real way of salvation avoids a cross and avoids everything that Jesus has been talking about here. And what Jesus is doing here is ripping the bucket off his head. Jesus continues on in verse 24 and tells his disciples exactly what will be required if they're going to follow him. Matthew records, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Now the bar that Jesus sets here for being his disciple ought to be familiar to us because he said something very similar earlier in Matthew 10, verses 38 through 39. And so it shouldn't come as a surprise to his disciples. There he says, Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And in fact, when we look at the parallel passage uh, in the other gospel, the gospel of Luke, Luke 9.23, it's made clear there just exactly what Jesus means when he talks about his disciples having, being called to carry a cross. He records it in this way. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. So while taking up a cross could literally include a cross, the very same kind of cross that Jesus was nailed to, and we know that others among Jesus' disciples were crucified and others of his followers who followed him in the generations to follow um, were crucified as well. There's something more that's intended here about carrying your cross daily. If we want to understand what it means to carry your cross, you can just work backwards from what Jesus has said here. So, if you're going to follow Jesus, Jesus says it's necessary for you to carry your cross. And we say, okay, what what does it mean to carry the cross? Well, you just go a step earlier to what he has said just before, and he says, you must deny yourself. So the meaning of carrying your cross is the denial of yourself. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean not eating donuts or or just like choosing random things to deny? No. It means denying the concerns and priorities that Peter has just articulated. Now, your cross can include unchosen circumstances. All of us have certain circumstances. Maybe it's health. Maybe it's relational situations that we didn't choose and which are difficult. And part of our cross is um, determining how we're going to respond to those circumstances, whether we're going to respond, for instance, by trusting in God or if we're going to decide 
we're going to get mad and just kind of kick against those circumstances. That can certainly be part of um, what it means to carry the cross. But I think most especially what it means here is it means those, those moments in which you have a choice. Where there's a decision to make. Because when we're talking about denying yourself, you're talking about the opportunities for, for making a choice. See, the cross of Christ is not thrust upon you. The cross that Christ calls us to is not something that we're forced to carry. It's something that you could avoid. You could avoid the suffering. Just as Peter here is saying, Jesus, I want you to avoid suffering. And really, I want us to avoid the suffering here. And so if we return to this idea of Peter's concerns and this analogy of, of a bucket, I want to kind of broaden out the analogy a little bit and think about the concept of making a bucket list, those things that you want to do with your life before you pass away. And I think it can be a helpful exercise to actually do that literally, write it down. Write down the things that you want to do, the things that you think you should do. Um, now, as some people make these lists, sometimes they come up with bad ideas that they shouldn't do. Sometimes they're neutral things that, you know, one way or another, they're not bad or good, you know, necessarily. You know, maybe you want to take a trip to Mexico or something. Um, and often it can include good ideas. Maybe you decide, you know, I really want to go on a missionary trip to Mexico. Or maybe I want to uh, dedicate myself to this or that ministry or to really be able to live close to my grandkids and uh, be able to raise them up in the faith. Totally great things, important things. And it's good to do that exercise to kind of clarify what is really most important in your life. But even those things which are good, can come, become bad if we doggedly cling to what we have in mind as to what should go down. It becomes a problem when we cling to those things when God is clearly leading us elsewhere. And when we cling to those things and don't go where God is leading us, then it becomes clear that God is really not at the top ordering our list. Something else is at the top. And so we're worshiping that thing rather than God. What Jesus tells his disciples is that if you do not deny yourself, if you do not carry the cross, then you're going to end up losing all those things anyways. He says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But on the other hand, if you give up your life, if you, if you die to yourself, if you give up those things to follow after Christ, then you will gain him and in turn gain your life. Paul in Philippians 3.8 
Speaking of himself, he says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Now Jesus has already said some things to his disciples and to us that should make us realize that the way of Christ is totally counterintuitive to the ways of this world. Go back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, reading verses 10 through 12. This is what Jesus says. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who went before you. When we suffer for the sake of righteousness, when we carry a cross following after Christ, we're called blessed. Because when we deny ourselves in that kind of way, when we lay our lives down, What's made clear is that we don't belong to ourselves. We're not the captives of our desires. We're not the slaves of this world. Instead, we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to Jesus Christ. Such persons have given themselves up to Christ. And giving ourselves up to Christ, giving ourselves over to Christ runs completely counter to a world that is focused on getting. The way of the world is about accumulating, accumulating more money, more houses, more honor and prestige. It's a bucket on your head kind of form of security. Because as Jesus says, what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For their life. You can collect all the things in this world and it will not save your life. And so Jesus says, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? See, in the end, it's not going to matter what you have. One thing that's going to matter in the end is who did your life belong to? And so some of us may have certain things in this life, certain goods, certain pleasures in this life that others are seeking after, and they think, if I get this thing, then I'll really reach the top. And so you can have two kinds of people. You can have the person who's seeking after the things that you have, and you might already have those things, but it's not a matter of them not having it or you having it in terms of what's going to matter on the final day when you stand before God. Because it's not a sin having good things in this world. The sin is is when you are the subject of those things, when you're the slave of those things, when you belong to those things. And you know you're a slave to those things if you can't just give them up. If you're not willing to deny yourself and pick up the cross and follow Christ. 
If we are disciples of Jesus Christ, then we need to recognize that we no longer belong to ourselves. We are no longer our own. Paul reminds us of this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. He says, You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. That is, offer all of yourself. Don't just offer your money or your time or this or that. Offer your very self, all of yourself, your very bodies, even if it means going to a cross. Honor him completely. As things stand on our own, we are losers. Because cling to life all you want, we're all heading to the grave. But death is not the only reality. God's authority far surpasses death's reality. He's going to be the one to determine our ultimate fate. And in these last two verses, Jesus speaks of this reality, of what stands on the other side of following him. Continuing in verse 27, he says, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then they will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So what Jesus puts before his disciples is that on the final day, on the day of judgment, they are going to receive the reward of their suffering, of following after Christ, of trusting, of giving themselves over to him. And what Jesus is saying here, it indicates that he's making a pretty significant claim about himself. He says that, he doesn't say that God is going to reward each person, or that is the Father is going to reward each person. He says that the Son of Man, that he will reward each person. Jesus is referring to himself. And what Jesus is doing here is actually quoting from Psalm 62. In Psalm 62, 12, David writes, And with you, Lord, is unfailing love, and you reward everyone according to what they have done. The you that David is referring to there is God. So what Jesus is saying about himself, again, is that he's pointing to the divine nature that is within himself, that he is God, that he is, he is one who has authority to give rewards. That's a significant claim. And it's also interesting, too, if you go to that passage, which he's alluding to, because it seems to just line up with everything that he's saying. And if I had all the time in the world, I'd read you the whole chapter. But I'm just going to read you the first verse from Psalm 62. It says, Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Isn't that what Jesus is just getting at here? Peter is trying to find his rest and security in the ways and plans and strategies of this world. And Jesus is saying, no. 
That's not where salvation comes from. It comes from resting in the Lord. It comes from trusting in Him. Now what Jesus is saying here about the fact that He's going to return, that He's going to give rewards to those who belong to Him, that all makes sense. But the last verse can confuse us a little bit. And I've been, this has tripped me up a few times in my own study and trying to understand what Jesus is meaning here in verse 28. He says, Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So remember who Jesus is talking to here. He's talking to his disciples and he's telling them that some of you standing right here are not going to be dead. You're going to still be alive on the positive end of it. You're still going to be alive when the Son of Man comes in his kingdom. Has Jesus made a mistake here? Because he hasn't returned yet. Some people in reading this verse have, have really been tripped up. And unfortunately, I think among some of those people, there's been those who've kind of used this as an excuse to try to throw out everything about Jesus. Say, oh, this is all just made up because clearly Jesus made a mistake, so he is wrong. You know, he hasn't come back. And we, we find in Luke 9.27, he says, it, it's recorded pretty much the same. It says, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before, the kingdom, before they see the kingdom of God. But when we turn to the Gospel of Mark, I think we get some important clarification. And this is why the best rule to follow is the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. When we're looking at the Gospel accounts, you want to look at all the Gospel accounts to understand everything that's going on. So, so in Mark 9.1, Jesus says to his disciples, Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. So in Mark's record, he's indicating kind of a little bit more of a present tense here, that the, that the kingdom has in fact come with power. And that Jesus, some of the disciples that Jesus is speaking to are about to see this very clearly. And as we've been going through Matthew, we've heard Jesus indicate that the kingdom has come upon them, that it's come near, it's come upon them. And what's really interesting, though, is if you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of these gospel accounts, they follow up this statement about some of the disciples seeing the kingdom of God. They follow this statement up with the record of Jesus' transfiguration, in which he is with Moses and Elijah on this mountain, and Peter, James, and John, so only three of the disciples are there to see it. This is go we're going to cover this next week in Matthew 17. Literally, in all these three of these accounts, this is what exactly follows. And so it seems like Jesus is alluding to this event as being the reveal of the kingdom and power. Peter seems to indicate that 
in his letter, 2 Peter 1, verses 16 through 18. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. Now that sounds familiar, coming in power, because Mark has just said that, and Mark knew Peter, and it's, Peter was kind of his first-hand source here. About the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So Peter seems to be indicating that Jesus' promise that some of his disciples would see this king, the, the, the coming of the kingdom, that this was fulfilled at his transfiguration. And there's more here to kind of indicate to us that this is exactly what Jesus is, is getting at, that there's two different senses of his coming. And in fact, there are two directions of the coming of the, of the Son of Man. The first direction is his ascension to heaven to receive authority, and the other sense is his return to earth to judge and reward. I've referenced this passage a bunch of times. Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14, and talking about Jesus as the Son of Man. Daniel prophesies, he says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. But notice the direction that he's heading. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. So he's not going to earth, he's going into heaven. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So you have the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days, and he's receiving all this power. He's receiving a kingdom. Sure sounds like the kingdom has come in a certain sense here. And then if we go to the other end of Scripture, you go to Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 17, but we're not going to read all of those verses. I've just selected a few and kind of summarized some of the others. We have this apocalyptic imagery in play of this woman who's about to give birth. This woman represents Israel. She's got 12 stars around her head. And the son that she gives birth to is Christ. Reading verse 5, it says, She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. So we think about Christ's resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And then it says after that, that the, drag, the, the dragon, which represents Satan, and his angels were cast down when this occurred. And then verse 10, notice what, what it says. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb 
and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. In other words, they, they denied themselves. They carried the cross. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Now as you read that whole description, you may, maybe you think like, okay, this is the very end, when Christ is returned, the dead are raised, etc., etc., but we see in the following verses that that's not the case at all. In verse 13, verses 13 through 16, the dragon chases the woman as the people of God. And then in verse 17 it says, Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So here it indicates that there's more to play out, that that Satan's pursuing the people of God, and yet, in the act of Satan and his angels being cast down to earth, following the ascension of this son into heaven, that in fact, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah has come. So what we see here then is that there is a distinction between Jesus' Jesus coming in his Father's glory with his angels to offer a reward and his coming in his kingdom, which some of his disciples will witness and see. So hopefully that kind of clarifies for you anything that seemed kind of initially troublesome about that. Jesus made no mistake here. The kingdom has come in power. And his purpose here is to focus the minds of Peter and the disciples. He wants them to, th- to think of the reward that is set out before them. He wants them to fixate on the presence of the kingdom. So yes, as they've been called to follow after him, The self-denial that is required is real. The cross is real. But the reward is also very, very real. Will you embrace that? Will you embrace those realities? Will you lose everything, let go of everything to follow Christ? Jesus is going to a cross. His way is the way of the cross. And it leads to his death. In turn, it also leads to our death. Peter's concerns are so much easier to embrace. Because his way lets us cling to our preferences, our dreams, our lives. We get to live in the comfort of our bucket. But the bucket can't protect us from death. The bucket can't hold anything in the end. We will lose it all. You see, you can't avoid losing your life. The only question is, will you give up your life 
or will it be taken from you? If we give up our lives and follow Christ, we will find life, everlasting life. If we trade our human concerns for God's concerns, we will know the power of the kingdom of God. The power of God's kingdom is the power of the cross established by Jesus Christ. It is the power to die without fear. To lose everything without, in truth, losing anything. But in fact, gaining everything because we belong to him. In him, we have our great reward. In him, we inherit the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Father, thank you for clearing our vision through the sending of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for giving us the opportunity to be joined to your concerns and to give up the concerns of this world. Because, Father, we understand that for all our effort, for all our, our efforts to accumulate and collect and make something of our lives here on this earth, Father, they can't protect us. They can't save our lives. There's merely a bucket on our heads. Father, help us to see this reality clearly. Help us to clearly see that by denying ourselves, by carrying the cross, by following after Christ, in fact, we are gaining everything that's worth having. That we are gaining our life, Father, in Jesus Christ. Not because we've earned it, Father, but because by giving up ourselves, we have surrendered ourselves to him so that we belong to him and we belong to you. Help us, Father, to live as those people who belong to you and no longer belong to ourselves, Father. Help us to be faithful. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Lord, bless you as you go. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offer to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Situate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Situate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we welcome Reverend Eric Reynolds as guest preacher. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.